Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of the modern monocle. Stopping the copyright bullies from pulling the wall on us. Facing and taking on all the plates to pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinizing through their lies and make them fall. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get Now, we cover a lot of different ground on this podcast, trying to explore and discuss a whole variety of different ideas, touching on the kind of things that we usually write about on TechDirt, covering innovation, policy, business models, economics, the law, and a bunch of other things that don't necessarily fit into any of those categories. Uh, We also don't fit neatly into any particular political viewpoint, which I know seems to frustrate some and often leads people to misclassifying, well, my views in particular, and sometimes some of our writers and and, uh, other contributors. Now, amusingly, uh, because of this, within the same week, at times, I've been described as both a right-leaning libertarian and a Marxist socialist at the same time, which I found to be kind of amusing. <laughs> However, what I've said all along is that if, if I believe in any kind of ideology at all, it is in the power of innovation, uh, usually driven by free market competition. And I find that often uh, government interference in markets will lead to significant consequences, whether intended or unintended, and we should be careful about what kind of consequences that leads for innovation. And while I don't feel that strongly committed to any particular political uh, philosophy, I don't mind pointing out that I think the power of competition and markets to incentivize incredible innovation is sometimes greatly misunderstood and underestimated. Now, that's not to say that I think markets are always right or that I believe in any sort of rational markets theory, uh, because I don't actually believe that. I think markets are messy and often unfair and sometimes create questionable incentives, at at least for certain periods of time. But I'm not convinced that the usual methods suggested for dealing with those issues uh, don't create worse problems over time in most cases. Now, given all that, in the last few years, certainly, there does appear to be a growing view that free markets and the concept of capitalism itself is, in general, bad uh, and somehow needs to be done away with. And while I think the whole traditional political spectrum is kind of silly and doesn't make much sense in the real world. Uh, The attacks and distrust of free market capitalism appear to be coming from people who at least self-identify on both ends of the political spectrum. It's not a left or right kind of thing. It seems to be happening uh, at, at both ends of that. And it often seems to express itself in some form of populism, uh, which often feels a, a bit, and this is cynical, but feels a bit like uh, we want to support the things we like and crush the things we don't like rather than a more coherent ideology. Uh, this worries me for a variety of reasons, but I certainly fear that after at least a few decades where many people generally seem to recognize the economic benefits of a generally free market system, that's now very much under attack. So for today's podcast, I wanted to discuss this with someone who probably spends uh, even more time than I do thinking about economics and related issues. And so we have on uh, economist Russ Roberts, uh, who, among other things, is a research fellow at Stanford's Hoover Institution, but is probably most well known for his always excellent Econ Talk podcast, which I'm 
just going to assume anyone listening to this podcast already does listen to. Uh, but if you don't, you should, uh, because it's been going on for uh, over a decade now, and he digs in deep uh, each and every week on a variety of very, very interesting topics with really fascinating guests. And so, uh, Russ, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. And we also have with us our uh, regular but uh, recently frequently absent uh, co-host, Hirsch Reddy. Uh, but uh, Hirsch was yes. very excited to be on, on this podcast as a, another fan of, of Russ and Econ Talk. So uh, welcome to the podcast, both of you guys. Um, so let's start off. Russ, you're the, you're the guest of honor. Um, do you think that my characterization is accurate that that sort of this the free market capitalism system is is now suddenly being viewed more skeptically? Oh, I think that's absolutely true. I think it's always hard to sell markets. They're not <laughs> under anyone's control and people that makes people uneasy. Uh and it also encourages people who want to manipulate them to do so. So there's always some discomfort around a market position, and I very much share your views. By the way, that uh, even though I, I would describe myself as a as a free marketer, and what I would call a classical liberal, meaning someone who's in favor of limited government and personal responsibility, and generally free markets, um, I also don't think markets work particularly well sometimes. And yeah. and I think one of the things that has prompted the, dis the unease people have with markets lately and the campaign, if you could call it that, against them or the prevalence of people railing against them, against, I would call, more bottom-up uh, economic life, people who want more top-down economic life, they don't like the way markets are working lately, not in terms of the mechanical sense. They don't like the outcomes. Right. So they have a natural urge to try to do something about that. Now, the, the difficult question is why are those outcomes so unpleasant? A lot of people don't care. They'll just say, well, I don't know exactly why this is bad, but we got to fix it. Other people say, well, here's why I think it's bad. we got to change that underlying problem. So, you know, a couple examples that are constantly in the news these days. One would be income inequality. A lot of people believe, I think somewhat incorrectly, but it is widely believed by economists as well as everyday people, that markets have created returns and wages and wealth to a very small sliver of the population, whereas in the past it, the markets for labor and investment work and capital worked better. And so therefore we either need to raise taxes, redistribute income, or fix the underlying problems with that are causing the, that inequality. Now I happen to believe that a lot of that perception is inaccurate. It's a incorrect uh, reading of the data. But it doesn't matter whether I'm right about that or not. There, you're right that there are a lot of people who are very upset about the perception that the rich are getting all the gains and the average person isn't sharing in them. Similarly, globalization, trade, uh, for the last, I'd say, 60 or so years, most Americans uh, were sympathetic to the idea that trade was good uh, on the basis of economic freedom being good or whatever understanding they had of how trade was supposed to work. Almost all economists were in favor of, of free trade, and many politicians were in favor of free trade, either because they understood the arguments in favor of free trade or they had personal political reasons for, for supporting them. And now trade, which was attacked by the left, you know, as much as 20 years ago, very much so attacked by the left, is now being, of course, attacked by 
Donald Trump and the Republicans and a variety of conservatives who I think are, well, they're supporting protectionism because Donald Trump does. So mm-hmm. that must be right. He's so smart. <laughs> um, I find that bizarre. People who have been free traders have now suddenly said, well, it's it's complicated. Right. Um, but there is a perception out there. And again, I think it's somewhat inaccurate, but there's a perception that trade has harmed America rather than helped it. I think that's wrong. I think trade has overwhelmingly helped most, if not all Americans, but not every single one. Certainly many people have had challenges competing with foreign producers who have lower wages. But in general, there have been many, many benefits from trade, many of which are un, un, uh, un, not understood or not fully appreciated. So we hear a very narrow story that trades hurt the United States, killed our jobs, killed manufacturing, lowered wages. And if you think that, you start to think, well, maybe this free trade thing is a little bit oversold. So I don't blame people for being uh, anxious or susceptible to arguments that uh, are anti-market because there's a feeling that the markets are not delivering the goods for, for most people. So those are just two examples. There are more. Yeah. Um, so I think the, the the particular economic times we're in, we can toss in the financial crisis of 2008, which led a lot of people to believe correctly, in my view, in this case, that the system is somewhat rigged yeah. in favor of uh, wealthy, powerful people. Uh, that's not a surprise to me, but it is to some people. It's disillusioning. So that's caused people, I think, to really shake up their views of sort of what's normal. So on the left, we've got people running as social democrats, uh, European style at least, if not stronger, social democrats. And on the right, we have populists and nationalists like Donald Trump and others who are attacking free markets from the right. So it is a very unusual time. Yeah. I would- you know, one comment I had, and I think something that Russ said really uh, rang out for me, which is that there's all these disc- discontents with the free market, right? But when people bring up specific instances that they're unhappy with, it seems to me they are specifically in those areas of the economy where we have the furthest thing from a free market, right? Like, so for example, if you look on your typical uh, uh, r slash socialism thread on reddit the discontents will be about primarily the healthcare system right and if you go on the tech dirt comment section the discontents are about the telecom sector right and these are both sectors that are that don't really operate very much like the way we would expect a market to actually function a working market right like it they there's a lot of interventions in the healthcare market that make it so that people don't actually make purchases of healthcare services in a way they wouldn't purchase other services right they're very they're immune to the cost of the services because of this insulation of the insurer in between and on the telecom sector various subsidies from the government have enabled sort of last mile providers of telecoms to form what really looks like local monopolies, not healthy markets at the local level, right? So this, these kinds of things uh, make it so that, so when people say, I don't really trust the free market because look at this, how badly the, the market is working in, in my cable provision or in the medical system, uh, it's, it's, it's just almost like they're criticizing the wrong thing. They should be criticizing uh, interventions in the market, not the market. Well, yeah, itself. and and as a sort of related note on the on the other example, Russ, that you gave with with free trade, you know, one of our complaints with a lot of the um, international trade agreements 
are that they're not about they're not actually about free trade yeah. you know we we've supported the the free trade aspects of them but you know what certain and again this is the sort of cynical view but what certain industries have done is sort of recognize international trade agreements as a way to sort of sneak in their own preferred protectionism yep. uh, you know and and we've discussed things around um the the what's known as the ISDS system or or some of the intellectual property rights that are put into these systems that are really, you know, what are sometimes um, referred to as non-tariff trade barriers, yep. which is sort of, you know, regulatory harmonization, um, which are not really about free trade. Uh, and so, you know, and, and that's where a lot of, I think, the, the biggest complaints are about the results of, of you know, certain trade agreements are, but they're not they're not really about free trade. They're about, you know, these other things that have been sort of piggybacked onto a free trade you know, or what is in name a free trade agreement. Yeah, I think that's part of it, although, yeah, I'll give you the example. Milton Friedman told me he was against NAFTA. I said, why? And he said something like, you know, it's too fat, the, mm. the agreement. It's too many pages. <laughs> if it were a real free trade agreement, it would just be one page long and it would say, the U.S. will not interfere with products coming in from Mexico and Canada, and Canada will not, et cetera. Um, now, I'm not quite I'm sympathetic to that view in that sometimes those trade agreements do give special treatment to special interests. They exempt certain products. They delay the implementation of free trade over a certain set of time, and then it, it gets extended. doesn't really happen. Uh, just to take an example, the Central American Free Trade Agreement, which uh, the United States is part of, uh, basically exempt sugar, which is an important export for the Dominican Republic and, right. and Costa Rica and others. And um, American sugar producers are very powerful. Now, that's, I think, a mistake. I think that's bad. It, it makes about 10 families really, really, really wealthy at the expense of hundreds of millions of Americans and millions of people in Central America. And so that's a horrible thing. But the rest of the agreement is generally a step in the right direction. Uh, so, so part of your, what you're saying about trade is correct. It's a misunderstanding that we don't really have free trade, but part of it is real that when you open up your markets to products, there's more competition that helps a lot of people and it can hurt some very badly in specific. Mm -hmm. In my view, the trade issue should best be conceived over a long period of time and ask whether you want your children and grandchildren, the next generation and the one after, to have the benefits of, of trade, in which case overwhelmingly uh, almost everyone's going to, I think, be better off, even if you yourself might lose your job and a factory that you work in might close and you might have to find another job that might not work as well. Your children and grandchildren will have an immensely higher standard of living because of our willingness to allow a dynamic economy and economic change. The other point I think that Hirsch makes is very good, which is I think a lot of people perceive market outcomes aren't really that aren't really market-based. Uh, you mentioned Hirsch, you mentioned uh, health care. Uh, another area that that is the case is uh, housing. So we have incredible restrictions on building new apartments or new housing in many American cities, not all, but many. And in those cities, the price of rent has gone very high and poor people have been priced out of the market. They find themselves commuting longer and longer to work in those cities. Uh, the people who would like to move there find it extremely difficult to afford the, the opportunity to move there. And in particular, young people have to find lots and lots of roommates or live very far from work or live in a very small place. And that is um, not the result that there's a market in housing. The price of housing is set in a market, but that market is highly constrained by limitations on the supply side. 
recently Kamala Harris uh, tweeted about the fact that I think it's a bill, I assume she's sponsoring it, that'll give a tax credit to people who spend more than 30% of their income on uh, housing. Well, that's going to be great for landlords uh, and home builders. Not so good for home owners and renter, home buyers and renters. A little bit, perhaps, but a lot of the gains from that subsidy will go not to the people it is allegedly trying to help, which are the the renters and, and home buyers, but rather the people who build or rent the houses and that's and apartments. And that's uh, that's a market force, but it's due to an underlying restriction of market forces. The same is true in education. Uh, the subsidies to education we've done in the United States have been great for me, uh, uh, a professor and longtime teacher. Uh, not so good like they were intended to be for the students. They get some of the benefit. It's some after the subsidies there sometimes are paying less than they otherwise would, but it's increased the demand for education, pushed up the price. That's true in healthcare. In the last 50 years, we've relentlessly taken the buyer out of the paying payment process as you alluded to, Hirsch, we've made, you mentioned insurance, but there's government programs like Medicare and Medicaid and, and other laws, legislation that makes it uh, the case that people aren't paying for health care out of their own pocket. Strangely enough, they're not as careful uh, when that's the case. Strangely enough, they want more than they otherwise would. Uh, strangely enough, that pushes up the price of health care. People should not be surprised that this proportion of the United States economy that goes to health care has grown steadily as those subsidies have grown steadily. So, a lot, I think it's an excellent point that a lot of the things that people are upset about are the result of government programs, not the result of market forces. And, and I also think that um, you mentioned uh, housing, which for some reason I'd overlook. But yes, I think housing is one of the really big red flags that comes up over and over again in conversations and in forum postings about why the government needs to intervene in markets. And and it's not just housing in terms of, hey, I come to San Francisco, I get a job, I end up giving 30 to 40% of my take home to the landlord. Of course, that's part of it. It's, this is just a wealth transfer to the landlords. But the other part of it is just that if I'm a kid who's in Cleveland and I have a programming degree and I can't find a job in the Cleveland market, it's very difficult for me to hunt for a job in San Francisco. It's not like when my father immigrated uh, and he came to uh, to Cleveland from India where he could just come in and he could finance his own housing for three or four months or for yeah. even six months. It, it's impossible. A kid doesn't have enough capital to, 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 um, to just rent an apartment and start looking for jobs in San Francisco. There's plenty of jobs for that kid. He's qualified. He, he, he will find an employer. And even if he's willing to give 40 or 50% rent, um, he doesn't have the capital, the quote-unquote startup capital, to come here and look for that job. So the market has responded to that in, a, in a, not the best way, but the best way that, that's available, which is you know, my son was had a summer internship, has a summer internship here in the Bay Area where I'm, here, I'm also here for the summer, and I'm renting a, a very expensive house because it's expensive here. Uh, he, when he got here, as you say, didn't have a lot of money, uh, he couldn't rent that house or anything remotely like it. He found an Airbnb with, I think, 25 other people. Uh, basically, it's a dorm. He shared a bedroom with, I think, four people, three or four people. And um, that is um, that's the way the market responds. It's not ideal. It's not really pleasant. It's still expensive, by the way. Mm. I think he was paying, I don't know, something like $60 a night for the privilege of sharing space with 25 people. And I think... 
two bathrooms? I can't remember any bathrooms, but you know, that's it's like he gets to live like in a tenement house. <laughs> well, we're a wealthy country. Uh, we probably shouldn't have to have the equivalent of a tenement house in 2018, but we do because we've made it extremely hard in the Bay Area to let people be creative and building new apartments and new new houses. And, and I also suspect, Russ, by the way, that um, that's it's just a blink of time where that'll be allowed because that's actually illegal under most zoning to have that many residents in a yeah. single house. Yeah. So so if they actually came around to it, the landlords, they could probably prevent that too. Uh, yeah, you're probably right. Mom's the word. We don't tell you. <laughs> Somewhere um, in the United States. Could be outside the United States. <laughs> right. Um, so, so playing somewhat of a devil's advocate here in, in some of this discussion, um, you know, some of the argument that people will make, especially on the sort of, um, you know, looking at, at you know, sort of European healthcare or, or uh, other systems is, you know, they'll argue that, that there's, um, you know, a, a need uh, for, you know, for basic safety nets, right? So um, whether it's around healthcare or housing or, or just, you know, sort of, or some people argue that the whole question around basic income comes into, into that discussion. Also, if you have basic safety nets, then you can have a layer of everything else above that, um, you know, be open to market competition, but you need those safety nets to make everything else work. And I guess that could apply for housing as well. Um, and there's some parts of that that I actually find pretty compelling. So I'm curious what you guys think of, of those arguments. Are you asking me how do I feel about a universal basic income? Um, it, it's, it's not so much that. It's, it's just it, that is part of the question, I guess. That's that's one element of it. I think the, the larger issue is, um, you know, I, I guess part of what I'm wondering is, you know, I'm trying to think of the best way to phrase it. So sorry that you know you talked. You know at the beginning you believe in in limited intervention, and there are certain areas where intervention, you know, does make some sense. The question is, um, you know, where might those be? And some argue, um, somewhat persuasively at times, that you know having. Uh, you know, some kind of safety net, whether it's healthcare or whether it's a basic income or something like that, is something that c can fit within uh, a larger free market system. You know, uh, above and beyond that safety net. Well, Mike, there is a bunch of safety nets. It's just a hodgepodge, sure. right? It's like rent control. There's Medicaid, Medicare. There's all these different. This is a hodgepodge of things. So, in that sense, I think having a basic income to consolidate all these other things uh, would be great. That that would probably be the least distorting way to intervene in the market, right? Rather than the government doing these sort of point interventions. Russ, what's your opinion on that? Well, I'm going to just start by saying I think there are a lot of things that the government does that are really good ideas. I don't, just yeah. Before we get to the safety net, I think laws against pollution, uh, whether they're um, the ones we have now, which are pretty good, they're, they're flawed. They, have, they benefit, they're set up in certain ways often to benefit a special political group. But overall, their net impact's been positive, uh, overwhelmingly positive. Uh, the enforcement of contracts, um, the use of courts, uh, laws against fraud. These are good things, and and the market could solve those. And by market, I mean the a bottom-up emergent set of solutions would happen. I think without the market, without the government intervention, 
but I think the government does those things pretty well. You know, they build roads pretty well, a little too well. You know, they build them everywhere all the time and like to repair them <laughs> because the people who benefit from that are not just the people who live near them, but the people who do the repairing. And so those are typically, they make sure that they're friends with government. So there's, there's always an imperfection, just like there is with markets, with government solutions. But a lot of those work, I'd say, you know, pretty well. Uh, the case of a safety net's an interesting example, though. The, in the absence of government safety net, there would be private safety nets. They would be structured differently. They would be less generous. They'd be harder to raise the money. There's what's called the free rider problem in, e in economics, the temptation mm -hmm. to let other people pay for it. Do you then not contribute? It's a totally normal human thing. We would use culture to try to overcome that. We did in the past. It worked pretty well. Uh, but the, I think the main attraction of a private voluntary safety net would be it would be structured in a way that would be a little more uh, customized to the individual. Maybe we'd be more compassionate. It's hard to know. We haven't tried it in any real way uh, ever in the United States. Government's always been involved in taking care of poor people to some extent. The Great Depression was when the federal government got most involved. And it used to be state and local, though. So we could have a private uh, safety net. I think the real, the more important question is, I think Hirsch makes a good point about the hodgepodge. But if we go to a universal basic income, which is more than just oh, you're happy, you don't have a place to live, here's some public housing, or you're bleeding on the street, we'll take care of you, the government will, will pay for your health care and your, to, to bring you back to health. Again, I think there'd be private charities and hospitals that would do that without government. But the real interesting question to me is, what if we just not, we got rid of all those and we said, okay, everyone needs a minimum standard to function in a, in a loving and caring society, and it's this amount. And, quote, this amount might be, in America today, might be $25,000 per person, maybe a little bit more. Um, and what most people have in mind when they invoke that is that everyone would get it. And the reason you would want everyone to get it is to get rid of the disincentives to work that happen when you have an income cutoff. If you said only people under $50,000 can get the subsidy, then people who are making fifty-five would quit their jobs Um potentially, not necessarily, but potentially to qualify. And so ten in most welfare programs, they get phased out generally. They don't have a hard cutoff like that. But once you do that, you start to start to pay for a lot more people than you started paying for. Uh, or you then start to say, well, let's not make the payments so generous. So there's all these trade-offs when you design a welfare program. And when people invoke universal basic income, they're typically saying, let's just cut through all that. Let's just give everybody a fixed amount. Some people will choose to work on top of that. God bless them. Other people might not be able to or, or have physical problems or their skills aren't demand anymore, so they should be taken care of. And I think the question there is, what are you doing to the, the underlying human experience? What are you doing to the world of work? If we go to a world where, and this is another example of where market outcomes have people uneasy, if we go to a world where a lot of people's skills are no longer in demand, suppose you're driving a taxi, or a truck and driverless cars and trucks come along and now you and millions of other people have nothing left to do with the skills you've accumulated as a driver, well, that's going to be really hard. Will people be able to find other things to do? And I think right now we don't know. There's a lot of anxiety about it. And there's a view that, well, since we don't know, we've got to make sure they're taken care of. And one way to do that would be this universal basic income. I just don't know what life would be like if large numbers of people uh, either couldn't find work or chose not to. And I think that that's the challenge is that mix. And I don't think we know where that is in America. Mm -hmm. You know, in Europe, uh, 
they have a serious problem with the, have a much more generous welfare state and have a lot of people have just decided to sit it out, take the welfare and not, um, not try to, to participate and be productive. It's a different situation if they literally can't, either for physical reasons or because the market is such that they, their skills are no longer in demand. It's the case of the taxi cab drivers and driverless cars, if that's actually what happens. And I don't think we know, we know really much about how, what that kind of world that would be where large numbers of Americans potentially would live off the productivity of others. Uh, that might be a wonderful world with lots of leisure and glorious time. It might be a dystopian world. I just, I don't think we have any idea. I mean, if yeah. we got to a world where robots were doing almost everything, and the only people who were earning income uh, were, and everything is therefore incredibly cheap, by the way, so that's really great, but the only people who have large amounts of income are going to be the people who create and design the robots, and, every, and all the rest of us are, are living off their uh, creative productivity of creating these robots, and we're going to sit around and watch YouTube and uh, learn how to play the guitar. I don't know if that's going to be a world all of us want to live in. I'm not sure we can stop it. Right? It could happen anyway, in which case... Yeah. You know, the universal basic income is the is the best way to cope with it. But it's just remarkable to me how open-ended that is. A lot of people are confident about what's good or bad about it. I don't think they have any idea. I know I, they I, don't. <laughs> I, I, I'm a little more optimistic than Russ about this. I think – so So there is the dystopia aspect of it. But I think I think human beings are very flexible for one thing. Um, one characterization that I think Russ has inaccurate is that it's not just going to be the people who design the robots and who make the robots who are going to be the ones who are going to have um, income. It's also going to be the owners of capital, obviously, right? They're people who own the machines. They're going to have uh, yep. money. And then these people who design the robots, unless robots are so human that they take on the jobs of chefs, of entertainers, of singers, of everything. There's, there's going to be a service economy, right? Uh, and if that's not the case, if it really is this kind of like very far in the future where like androids look exactly like human beings and perform exactly like human beings, I think in that far future, um, we should ask the question, is it even humans designing robots then or is it just other robots? And if, hmm. if, if, if it's a complete robot economy, then I don't even think we need to talk about markets. At that point, we should all have like Singapore-style socialism where we, we have big <laughs> estates and the robots do everything, right? Like that's too far in the future. So we're clearly, we're clearly talking about something before that. And if it's something before that, I think there will be a service economy. And if, if we're skeptical whether there will be an expansion of the service economy to absorb all this um, excess labor, I think we should be optimistic optimistic because human desires are not limited. They expand. As, as you have more capability to buy things, they expand. And I'll give you one example. When I first moved to San Francisco, when you were a young programmer and you wanted to go out and get something to eat, you would leave the office, you would go walk a few blocks and you would get a sandwich and you would pay about five or six dollars for it, right? Now, programmer incomes, intro, intro programmer, the young apprentice programmers make probably three times as much as what I made in 1996, 97. Um, and they have a lot more income. And instead of buying that 6 or $7 sandwich, what they would rather do now is pay $14 and have someone else ride it over on a bicycle to them, right? Like, they can still get a cheap sandwich if they walk around the block, but they don't want to do that. They want to pay more money. So why is that? I, I think it's that that convenience just becomes habit. And I think... As people's incomes and buying power increases, they're going to just create all these new uh, desires and services that we can't even imagine. I couldn't even imagine in 1997 well, that that would be an industry. I'm not, I'm not pessimistic. I, I agree with you, although I don't think that's a, maybe the best example. I think, <laughs> yeah. Because I think the drone is going to bring you the sandwich yeah. is, the, is the worry. 
I think the real issue is is that it, if you're like my wife, my wife likes to talk to her service people. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm ambivalent. Sometimes I do. Depends. But my wife definitely is is an interactor with her her service people. And you know, the example I use is that uh, right now she gets her nails done occasionally at a place uh, where the people who do the work are Vietnamese. And their English is pretty good. Her Vietnamese is non-existent. But she enjoys interacting with them. And if, she, if I told her, you know, for half the price, you can put your hands in this box and 30 seconds later you'd have perfect nails, I don't think that would appeal to her. She likes that human contact. And I don't think she'd like a robot that <laughs> looked Vietnamese, spoke English with an accent, and that you know, did her fingers the way a typical human being does a manicure these days. So I think the, I do think there will be a demand for human contact and real human beings. And, and we see that now. We see people who, despite their enslavement to their screens, also do want to talk to actual human beings in, 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 in large numbers. Uh, so I'm not pessimistic, but I, I gave the pessimistic scenario because I think it's important or interesting at least to think about widespread people not working at all for a yeah. salary, being on, on the government or even private uh, paycheck, so-called dole, being on the dole. And I, I don't, I, I, a lot of people just think that's like going to be great. And I'm not so sure that's going to be great. Well, yeah. I think I, th I think people won't be on the dole. I think I think the cautionary tale that kind of informs your description of that is when you look at the banlieues in um, uh, or whatever you call it, those outer suburbs in France, where you have large numbers of young people that are on the dole and and they're not working. I think the that is a symptom of the fact that the market there is not dynamic. There isn't. It's hard for people to create new enterprises because if you if you actually look at what young people are doing in those areas where they can't find formal work, they're actually trying to do different enterprising things. They're trying to start yeah. t-shirt companies. Yep. They're trying to become rappers. They're doing things. It's just that the economy doesn't let them form a small company to I don't know. Manufacture I wouldn't say the economy. Right? I'd say the <laughs> regulatory <laughs> environment of Europe right. is, is makes it more expensive than it is here. Uh, but I think it's. A, I, I want to riff on that because I think it's an important point. I don't think people are going to say, "Oh, great! I get a check for the government. I don't have to ever work again." Uh, I don't think most people want to be uh, working, being paid to do nothing. I think because people want to be productive. So I didn't mean to suggest, as I may have implied earlier, that that this will be like a big, a huge problem. The problem will be if they if they can't find work if they want to, and that's just. We'll, we'll see. It's kind of, in a way, it's kind of silly to speculate about it. Just, yeah. It's a little bit so fun. But the, the 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 example that I've used in the past that I think that I, I think about a lot um, too is um, the the AT and T operator example, which is mm -hmm. you know in the early days of the telephone, you know you had people and they were generally women at the time who their job was just to connect, you know, line to line and plug, you know, this cable into that cable in order to connect a phone call. And you could argue, you know, and, and at the time there was over a hundred thousand people employed in that job, you know, connecting uh, call to call. And eventually uh, along came automatic 
switching, which put most of those people out of work. And you could argue that that auto, that bit of automation, you know, should have thrown out a hundred thousand or over a hundred thousand people out of work. And what other skill could they possibly have? And of course, what happened over time was it also then opened up all sorts of things, including like, you know, massively increased the market for telephones and created all sorts of, you know, uh, related businesses. Unpredictable it, it, too. Could never complete, been for, couldn't have been foreseen. Imagined. Exactly. None of this could have been foreseen. The idea of a call center exists because of that. And you could, you know, even go further forward with that. Once you had automatic switching, you had other, uh, you know, aspects of the telecom system that eventually enabled the internet itself. And so, yep. you know, which has now obviously employs lots more than the 100,000 people who were employed, you know, plugging cable from into, you know, this slot to this slot to connect a phone call. So there is this element that I think is important to recognize exactly what you were saying, Russ, which is completely unpredictable. And so we don't exactly know we could put the 3 million people who drive for a living out of work through automated cars um, and something else might come along similar to the case of, of the phone switching. Now, well, I also, though, will say that I, I do have a general problem with the idea that, well, that has to happen, <laughs> that obviously that there will be something else that will come along and, and save them. I, I do think it is worthwhile to think about, you know, what those things might might be and to sort of recognize, like, we should be at least aware of the, uh, you know, at a social level that the, it could also cause problems, uh, you know, within that transition. I just want to say something about the driverless car for a minute, because I think it's a nice example that I think is easy to see. You know, all the examples we're talking about are what Schumpeter called creative destruction. And sure. it's an imp incredibly important concept and, and I think not well understood and partly because it inevitably involves some kind of imagination or at least pretending to, to think about what could happen. So let's take driverless cars. If driverless cars come along and they're incredibly safe, which are their promise, we'll see if it is realized, but if they came along, it's possible people would pay to have someone in the car to talk to who's a human being as opposed to just sitting on your phone. That wouldn't be me. I wouldn't do that. I'd like being on my phone in the car with the, even with the cab driver, the Uber driver. But a lot of people like to talk to him, and I do talk to him plenty. So that's one possibility. The other possibility, of course, is that because of driverless cars, it'll be cheaper. It'll be a lot cheaper to drive places. The reason will be is that cars will be uh, made of much lighter materials if there's no risk of, um, of an accident. And so the cost of a mile driven is going to drop a lot. Uh, and when people travel, they're going to be able to use driverless cars very cheaply because they won't have to pay the driver of a taxi or an Uber. So it's going to be very, look to be a lot less expensive to go places. And so, uh, my wife and I say we'll be more likely to go downtown to dinner because the ride's going to be much more pleasant. I don't have to drive myself. I don't have to chat with the taxi driver. My wife and I can have a bottle of wine on the way if we'd like because we are not driving. It's safe. And uh, when I get there, there are going to be a lot more people to serve me because there are going to be a lot more demand for restaurants and a lot more choices because people won't have to spend so much in their cars. There will be a lot more something else. So that's the hardest part for people to see about right. creative destruction. Your example of the telephone is perfect. Well, what are those 100,000 people going to do? Well, they're going to do something else because phone calls are going to get cheaper and people are going to be able to make phone calls less, with less money. And therefore, they're going to be able to do something else. And what's that going to be? That depends on the creativity of human beings are coming up with new things that, that people like. And I, it's the real challenge here is that 
as technology has come along in the past, destroyed jobs, many, many more jobs have been created along the way to respond to population growth. It's never been a problem uh, overall. It could be a problem for a person if you were that woman who was connecting the lines uh, by hand. Of course, her mm -hmm. life was disrupted for some period of time, maybe a long period of time. Maybe she had challenges raising children and being with her family she didn't have before. So it's not all roses. It's not, I don't want to sugarcoat it. But many, many, always in the past, things have come along. Now we're, we're wondering, is this time different? Right. That, that robots and technology will replace everything. And I think Hirsch's point, which I agree with this, well, how can it replace everything? People are always going to want some human contact, some services of various kinds. Um, so I think that is what will happen, but maybe this time will be different. And if it is, we'll adapt and adjust to it. So it is kind of silly to have all these doomsday, I think, arguments now. Uh, markets in places where markets are allowed to be dynamic, jobs have been created despite all the technology of the last hundred years. It wouldn't be shocking if over the next hundred years, jobs get created in the face of whatever is the technology of that period. I think one point worth raising, Mike, is that if you are a fan of free markets and if you are a fan of innovation and you want innovation to continue without there being sort of Luddite interventions from the government, right? I think you will, you, you should support something like a basic income because I think politically, um, if you just look at the way the winds are blowing right now, I think without something like a basic income, we'll find ourselves, uh, you know, buffeted on all sides by all kinds of other worse types of intervention, right? Like, like trade restrictions, weird housing uh, subsidies from the government that'll distort the market more, you know, all kinds of things that I, I think that a, a, the, it would be a much more sort of uh, elegant intervention to just do a basic income, right? At well, least think, that's my opinion. I, I, think I don't they, have anything to yeah, back up. I mean, I think, I think the, the, the argument, which I think there, there's, I mean, there's at least historical evidence for this kind of thing, which is that when you do sort of attack these problems sort of piecemeal, and, and I've described this specifically in the copyright context of like every time something new comes along that challenges the old, old way, you sort of duct tape on a, a new solution to the, the, the horrible mess that you created in the past and you just add another layer of, of horrible mess that, that isn't ready for you know, the, the next innovation or the next big challenge uh, as opposed to sort of taking a step back and saying like, can we create something new that, that works under this, in, you know, this ecosystem or this environment? And so you're arguing that you know, the best sort of way to wipe the slate clean on sort of that you know, duct taping on new you know, partial solutions might be something as clean as a basic income. Yeah, I, I get the appeal of that argument. It doesn't work for me. Um, if if I could give a reaction to that, I I think the issue would be like if you look at Europe, Europe has a much bigger safety net than we have. Don't exactly see them tolerating market outcomes in lots of places, um, encouraging risk taking, competition, etc. And of course, the real reason for that is that. Both of those outcomes, their safety net and their regulatory environment, are coming from the simil a similar impulse, a, a top-down impulse, uh, a more controlling impulse, a more fear of uncontrolled market processes. So my worry is that if we moved in the direction of a universal basic income, if we start advocating for it, arguing that that will allow markets to be unleashed elsewhere, I'm not sure we're going to get that result. Uh, could be. I, mean, I see the argument. It's um, it's possible. Uh, but I don't. I, I don't know if it's actually would, would come out that way. Well, well, let's well, let's probe that a little further. So, so 
let's say I concede to you the point that that doing basic income could potentially sort of encourage more top-down management of the economy, um, and so that we wouldn't want to do that. Sort of based on kind of the reactions that we're seeing, I think in in the political sphere, to the way free markets have worked in the past. And as we've agreed, right, it's not pure free markets. It's kind of more, in some areas, it's more like crony capitalism, yep. but still. It's markets as it is in America. If we want to keep America humming along, right, and, and we think free markets are a big part of that, then what do you, what do you think the, the right political move should be for people like me and Mike that, are, that would like to see markets around, right, so, like if it's not basic income? Yeah, yeah, no, that's a great question, fantastic question. I think the... The real issue for me is that the, as you point out, we have this mixed bag. It's some of it's fairly free, some of it's not so free, some of it's totally cronied and ruined. But if you look over the whole landscape, we're a lot more free than most places, uh, maybe everywhere almost, uh, lots of places. And how do we preserve at least that level? And I'd say, you know, what's the what's the thing that bothers me? Forget, you know, I've argued that some of the worries that people have are overblown or misinterpretations of data. But I have things I worry about. One of the things I worry about, the thing I, I find most troubling about America today, is the number of people who struggle to participate in in various aspects of the economy because of their lack of skills. People at the bottom of the of the economic ladder. Uh, you know, I have a I have a wonderful, glorious life. My life is. About half of my work life is spent talking to really smart people, and you know about that as a host of a podcast. It's a fantastic thing that I can make money doing it and that people pay me to do it is just unimaginably pleasant. Um, my kids got good educations. Uh, they won't make as much as some people because they've chosen careers perhaps that are not as lucrative, but they're not anxious about the future. I'm not anxious about their economic future. Uh, I think they're they're going to do fine. What I am anxious about are the, are the kids of folks who don't have my education, whose kids didn't get my education, kids' education, and who don't have the skills from the very beginning to be successful in the information economy. So that, I think, is a serious, real aspect of what's wrong in America today economically. And I blame that, perhaps incorrectly. It's it's a multifaceted problem, of course. But one of the problems is that the education that we give kids today in poor neighborhoods is not very good. There are other problems, not the only problem, but it's it's a big problem. Is the quality of the education? I'd like to see that change. So if you want to work for something, I would argue you should work to solve that, not to get the universal basic income passed. So we have people who can't participate in the economy who are struggling and whose standard of living is low, can't make more than the minimum wage, can't find work at the minimum wage. Let's help those kids and the kids in the future are going to be like them from getting to that place by getting them a great education. There's thousands of people, I wish it were millions, but there's thousands of people devoted to that problem. They're running charter schools. They're running schools in, in a neighborhood. They're, you know, one school. They're taking, you know, LeBron James just opened up a, a new school. I don't know if it'll be any good. But people are passionate about this, and if we can if we could do better on that front, I think we would make some progress. And I, that would be I would rather do that than than use the universal basic income or other solutions as the band aid. I'd rather have the wound not be open to start with. Yeah, I, well, that's that's interesting. Um, I, I I I'm actually I I agree with you that the education is 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 very is necessary. Um, 
to to expand incomes, but I'm not sure if it's if it's sufficient because in India there's a there's a charity that I work with that does that provides uh, basic primary education, and uh, and it's primary in a rural setting. And one of the things is uh, the the first graduating classes are now graduating and going and they're at the college age, uh, an age where most kids in 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 India actually just start working. Very well, most Indian kids don't necessarily go to secondary education. And one of the things is that you 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 we are graduating these cohorts of kids that are educated and prepared to work, but we haven't sort of gotten to the point where we've expanded the opportunities for them. So what happens is the kids. Primarily, they move to cities, right? And when they move to cities, they find the same discontents in cities that that the kids that grew up in the cities have, right? Um, where the education doesn't necessarily give them a big step up, uh, it helps them a little bit. Um, but I, I don't think that those kids are any more sort of <laughs> pro free market than any other kids in the economy, if that makes sense, right? So I I, I do think I, it certainly improves the lives I think of the kids, but I don't know if it sort of improves the economy from a pers- from a from a from the perspective of keeping innovation alive right like you could you could educate a whole generation of kids they could find that they don't have opportunities with the education they've been given and they could have the same discontents as their parents and still end up going to the ballot box and saying you know we we would like to nationalize industries or something yeah, like that's that that's a fair thing. point i mean the way i would think of it is is that you know if i train you to be a programmer or coder uh, an entrepreneur, but you can't raise capital, or people in the economy can't raise capital. There isn't capital to be uh, set free to start new enterprises. It's not going to help you that much. Um, you do have. It's a multifaceted problem. I don't want to pretend that this mm-hmm. alone is going to better education alone would solve it. I think there's serious cultural issues as well, uh, socialization and other things that make it hard for people to uh, to participate in the economy, find work, and so on. Uh, and so I, I do think we ought to keep an eye on making sure there are opportunities for innovation that, that employ the people with the skills that, that they could be acquiring. So I, I do think it's a multifaceted problem, but um, I think you got to start there. Yeah, and I think that, you know, to some extent, this goes way back to an early podcast that we did. And Hirsch, I don't even know if you remember, where we had this whole discussion on, like, what what education should include. I mean, you guys are talking about education generally, but you open up that black box yep. um, and, and there's a wide range of options and, and wide range of directions that you could go in. And, and, you know, part of that discussion was kicked off with everyone talking about how, you know, there's all these debates about whether or not, you know, uh, kids should learn how to code, you know, in elementary yep. school or whatever. And I was asking like, well, should we teach, you know, economics or should we teach st- statistics, basic statistics to kids at, at that level also? Because there, you can make arguments that yeah. having a better understanding of all of those things could oh, be Oh, they're useful. all good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> They'd all be good things to know. <laughs> uh, and and whether, whether education provided by, you know, the state or a private system should focus on marketable skills versus right. life lessons versus self-awareness versus self-control. I mean, I want my kids school to do all those things, right? <laughs> right not right. one of them. One, one is nice, but not enough. And, and so it is a big, it's not a, again, it's not straightforward of how, how you would, quote, solve that or fix it. I just think that the current system is pretty awful. And I, I think we ought to work at, at dismantling it, replacing it with something, maybe not all at once, not the national level, and people write me all the time and say, should we be like, should we use do what Norway does? And the answer is almost <laughs> certainly not. 
Uh, I don't want to do anything as a nation like another nation. I want right. to let a lot of different things emerge, blossom, get tried. Some will be thrown out. Some will be copied. Some will be adapted. Mm -hmm. Some will evolve. I mean, it's just absurd to think, yeah, we just need a, we just need a basic curriculum or we need great books or mm -hmm. it all should be STEM. That's all. That's all that matters. Right. And those are just, that's just the wrong approach. And then we become so inured to that way of thinking. Like, what's the way to fix it? Well, it's not something you fix. It's not, there's no one answer for every kid. Not one answer for every school system. Not one answer for every state. Certainly not one every answer, one answer for every country. Yeah. I think we can say what is not the answer, though. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I'll tell you, yesterday, uh, my, my neighbor's son, he, he, I, I watched him grow up, young kid, and he's actually working at a company called Coursera that, yep. um, that does online education. And we were having lunch, and he, and he was telling me about this online degree programs that the, that the company had started. Mm -hmm. and, and, and they're not cheap, right? Like these are tens of thousands of dollars for these online certifications and things like computer science, web design, whatever it is, right? And I asked him, I was like, yeah, hey, you know, like, like who is, uh, who's paying for this? And I was thinking the answer would be, you know, some out-of-work truck driver or, or like, you know, secretary looking to get a better career or something like that. And he's and he what he told me was like pretty shocking. What he said is that no, like a lot of them are actually just recent graduates from college uh, who have just finished a four year degree. And my question to him was, they just paid for yeah. a four year degree. <laughs> what the heck? Why, why are they paying for another degree? Yeah. What, what what did they do in that four years that that Coursera is doing for them extra for additional payment? Why didn't Coursera just take them out of high school? Well, that's like, well, <laughs> well that that's a, that is an interesting question that. Maybe the future. A lot of people thought that would be the future five years ago. Lately, I think there's a lot more pessimism about the opportunity for online learning to replace college or other or high school. But um, still, could happen. It's early, it's early days. Yeah, I mean, w one of the things that I think sort of flows through all of this. I mean, going back to kind of like the initial framing of this discussion, and then everything that we've talked about, and something that I've been thinking a lot about lately, and I, I can't quite wrap my head around it to figure out how to put it into a concise manner but but it's this idea of like understanding the importance of nuance yeah <laughs> and and that like the sort of simplified answers um tend not to actually be good ones <laughs> just because there are so many different variables at play um and and almost any sort of single simple solution to almost any kind of problem leads to all sorts of other potential issues mm -hmm. and sort of recognizing that and being willing to to embrace that there is nuance and that e answers aren't that easy um is something that i think is really important and i'm and i haven't quite figured out how to Especially in this age. Yeah. Well, that's, that's called growing up. I mean, growing yeah, up I is guess. hard. It takes years. Um, you know, if I, could, if I made a list of the things I've learned in the last 10 years, I'm 63. It's an embarrassing list. And if I told you what they were so that you wouldn't have to wait till you were in your 50s to figure them out, I'm not sure it would help to see the list. A lot of them, you just have to go through it. And I think the policy answer to that, Mike, is what Russ said before, which is that instead of just mandating giant top-down programs like Norway, like across the whole continent, you need to have lots of experiments yeah. to see what will succeed. And, and it might not be the same program in all parts of the country, right? Sure, different, sure. Different totally. models will work in different places. What works in California might not work in Minnesota. And yeah. Places. But I mean, and, and I had this discussion recently as well, which, you know, even that, like, I, I totally agree. And like, I, I think that there's a lot of value in having experimentation and 
and you know you throw a bunch of different things at the wall and you see what sticks and then you know if if you know using the the norway u.s analogy if the u.s does something that's really amazing that people in norway then want to try out and build on and maybe build a better version of it like that that's great too but there are also areas where that becomes difficult as well where you know there are certain things you know the internet being an example where you know having a a sort of single standard that everyone can access has its benefits rather than letting everyone experiment in their in their own ways um and so you know it, it, it again there's like there's a level of nuance here where yeah like I, I think experimentation and um letting people try things and innovate uh you know you know not just in the the corporate you know product sense but in in all of these issues i think is really important and useful but then there are some cases where that might not be the best either so it's well i just yeah. want to add one thing here i i just googled uh norway and discovered it's a scandinavian country encompassing <laughs> mountains glaciers and deep coastal fjords well we have a few mountains in the united states we don't have that many deep coastal fjords we're not scandinavian and our population is slightly bigger than 5.2 million, which is the population of Norway. Norway is like a large, not even a large, a semi-large American city spread out over a country <laughs> of mountains, glaciers, and deep coastal fjords. And it's just not obvious. With lots it, of oil. Yeah, well, we've got wow. lots of other stuff going on, too. Yeah. Um, but anyway, my point is that you, you, not, besides the whole idea of a top-down solution that fits everybody being a good idea or a mandated curriculum or a mandated social structure for schools is probably not going to work as well in a country of 330 or so million people compared to one that has 5 million. And just, just, you got to keep that in mind. Yeah, no, I, I, I think I think that's fair. Anyways, there's there there we could keep going on this because there's a whole bunch of other stuff I would love to discuss, but uh, we we are certainly approaching an hour or so of time, and and uh, I think for uh, our, our our listeners, that's probably going to be enough. But but Russ, this was a really interesting discussion. We'd love to have you back in the future again because uh, I'm sure we could keep talking about this or or a variety of other topics as as well. That'd be great. Um, but but thank you very much for, for taking the time and, and joining us and having this very interesting discussion. My and, pleasure. I enjoyed it too. Uh, and uh, Hirsch, thanks for, for yep. <laughs> joining as well. And uh, thanks to everyone who's been listening. And we'll be back next week. Someone no get. Huh. To grab a shovel and think of the tech. Huh. If we don't stand up to them, someone no get.